0: Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce: The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind, but I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce: From Love-Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series. And the follow-on to that will be out in the spring. And that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap the mind-bending pull of the great pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained Thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators, and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com, and that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Well, today, Karen and I are really delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Craig Malkin to the podcast. Craig is a lecturer in psychology for Harvard Medical School, and he's in private practice as a licensed psychologist. He has over two decades of experience in helping couples, individuals, and families. He's the author of the excellent book Rethinking Narcissism. His research has been published in peer reviewed journals. And he has a blog on psychologytoday.com called Romance Redux. And he's also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Dr. Malkin's advice and insights are regularly featured in major magazines and newspapers, as well as in TV and radio shows. Craig also has a popular YouTube channel specifically dealing with narcissism. And he was a contributing author to the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. So thank you so much for joining us, Craig.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So Craig, I want to talk about something that I read in your book, which I'm always recommending to people, Rethinking Narcissism. I noticed in the introduction that you talk about your mother, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. Specifically, I'd like to know whether you think that narcissists actually get worse with age, and if you do, why do you think that is?
1: Whenever people ask me about this, and of course, because I wrote about it in the book, everybody is curious. I always think of the conversations I have with my wife, Jennifer, because she joked with me once that the answer to how I got interested in narcissism, why I'm in this field at all, sounds like the beginning of a bad psychologist joke, because it's like it all goes back to my mother mm-hmm. and But that is the truth. Mm -hmm. From very early on in my studies, even when I was informally interested in narcissism, when I was an undergraduate, and I came across narcissism in a textbook, or I was reading about personality disorders, I was always drawn to the topic in thinking about and trying to understand what was going on in my relationship with my mother. And then I got older, and I did my advanced training. I just continued on that track. I trained with one of the foremost experts in narcissism a guy named Andy Morrison and I, I just kept going and I was most concerned with trying to figure out what I really felt was the paradox of my mother and that was that when I was younger I had these memories of being close to her and us having a good relationship now in retrospect I realized that there were red flags even then. If I look back on what was going on, it wasn't entirely healthy. But when I was younger, it felt okay. And I even would have described her as warm and supportive. And then over time, as I reached my teens, and I was not a particularly difficult teen, mind you, in fact, the opposite, she became more critical Sometimes she'd call me a brat when we had any kind of interaction where I was disappointed or upset. If I dared to say it, she would either ice me out or she would collapse in tears and present it as though somehow I had hurt her. There was just really no room for me at all. So I was always trying to figure this out. And to circle back to your question, it is interesting she appeared to get worse with age i mean when i moved her after my father died my wife and i moved her she was intolerable just Mm -hmm. miserable and attacking accusing me of stealing her money it was just all Mm -hmm. thoroughly awful and i was trying to reconcile that with these early experiences i could only conclude that she'd gotten worse with age what's interesting is if you look at the research Mm -hmm. on character disorders on personality disorders there's a large scale studies that take people who have the diagnoses and most people appear to age out of these more aggressive adversarial aversive personality types they and one the researchers conclusion is well this must be because and i think there's something to this this must be because they lose energy and they don't have they don't they don't have the energy as they get older to be as aggressive and uh, unpleasant as maybe they were when they're younger. But I think there's, that happens. But then there's also a group like my mother who was so organized around her looks. Mm -hmm. And and this is my answer to your question. I think there are some people who get worse with age Mm -hmm. and it's the ones who don't really experience any kind of core softening or change who continue to be organized around feeling special, exceptional, unique compared to the other 8 billion people on the planet becomes, you know, it's still their primary concern. Mm -hmm. Once they lose their supply, Mm -hmm. the the word that we often use, once they lose what it is that helps feed that sense. And in my case, it was my, in my mother's case, it was her looks they, they then have to turn to other narcissistic defenses, like entitlement. Yeah. Um, acting as if the world owes them, right? How are you going to get, how are you going to feel special if people don't go along? Well, if you just insist, they have they have no room to do anything but go along. That's what entitlement is, and exploitation. And then you can see is some people are just going to worsen with age. Their defenses will become more rigid. That's definitely what happened with my mom.
0: See, I wonder about that. I wonder with the, the supply element, because I'm thinking of you narcissists. They definitely got worse with age. But it's not because they've lost supply. And that's what confuses me. I don't know whether it's just because, you know, that arrogance of youth, it sits better on a younger person. And perhaps it's just more obvious on a slightly older person.
1: That definitely happens. You're You're absolutely right. I mean, you can run into that parenting as well. Because what happens is for all of us, and this is, I'm not going to pathologize this, we all kind of get more set we do become a little bit more rigid in our in our ways if there were ways that we were if we were guarded before we might kind of dig in mm-hmm. and that guardedness in, in in the absence of any other interventions like if you go to long term psychotherapy it's all about changing those core patterns and for those people they might have it might have a protective mm-hmm. effect on them but as people become more rigid with age if they also have these personality traits regardless of whether or not there's still a supply going on they're also going to get worse because of that but then there's also people who who their supply just increases mm-hmm. you know you get these really grandiose chest-thumping braggart uh, narcissistic personalities who manage to organize their world around them mm-hmm. And it's just gonna feed into their sense of basically being a god. They're they're only gonna get worse and that's gonna consolidate their sense that this is how they have to be in the world. So that's an instance too, where there's no lack of supply. If anything, it's because they keep creating this system where they have limitless supply.
0: And that's really interesting. Someone described narcissism as being an addiction in itself. So they were addicted to narcissistic supply. And in much the same way that um, all types of addictions work, they needed more and more of it in order to have the same effect. You know, they developed a tolerance to narcissistic supply as one develops a tolerance to alcohol or drugs. That kind of goes along with that, doesn't it? That you've got these really grandiose people and they're getting more and more supply and they're becoming more and more omnipotent and more and more godlike. And yet they still need even more to get that sort of hip, to feel it, to feel the supply, to get the result of the supply.
1: It overlaps with some of my thinking too. I do have an addiction metaphor that I use in my writing and thinking about this, and I and I mention it. In fact, if you look at the spectrum in rethinking narcissism, I sort of range in terms of problem or r- rigidity fr- from habit to addiction. Like, is this habitual, or is this p- is this person? Mm-hmm showing an addictive use of this this need to feel special really self and en- self-enhancement, this sense of this inflation of self. And it makes sense to me that that there would be a kind of tolerance effect. Yeah. Because as somebody becomes more and more reliant on that for their sense of value and worth and self, they're become they're going to become also as correlated with that, less and less tolerant of being seen as flawed or having errors or making mistakes, because it clashes with that view that they continue to keep maintaining and building up.
0: And that's the type of narcissist. I'm thinking that might get worse with age as well. Thinking
2: about it, full in work um, and has been very um, integral within the family setup. And as they get older and the children become more independent and their position at work has peaked and starts to decline, and they can't quite bear to give up work, because they're not entirely sure what they're going to do when they stop. Um, And and they feel as though everybody who needed them and looked up to them has suddenly started to fall away. And I think, Craig, you're right, that either they they do manage to have a little bit of self-reflection at that moment, or they really become quite nasty unduly aggressive, almost to the point of being unexpectedly violent, Um, I tend to find there's that sort of loss of all the supply that they relied on maybe for 20, 30, 40 years, all seems to sort of disappear at the same time, perhaps when they're in their 60s. And they really become quite malevolent. And if you've been stuck in a marriage, let's say you've waited until the children have grown up and have become independent, and suddenly you think, God, I'm either going to end my days doing this, or I have to get out of it. Um, and it can be much more difficult because the narcissistic spouse has very little else to focus their attention on.
1: Absolutely. Now, that is a great depiction of the decline. And it it, it all comes back to w- one major narcissistic injury, mm. uh, w- which which is the limits of their influence and their power and their importance. Yeah if you st- if you also think of narcissism as a defense it's a defense against against feeling insignificant unimportant not mattering mm. because they never felt like they mattered in in a healthy way generally they are insecurely attached yeah. so they don't really trust that somebody will hold them in high esteem just because they're a person mm. and they're loved so that's why they they turn to these more performative ways and nothing leads to that that kind of worsening, exacerbation of symptoms that you're describing in in vulnerable or closet narcissism, to use your term, more than running up against, oh, maybe I'm not all that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When that defensive shield starts to crumble and they can no Mm -hmm. longer maintain the solution.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think that is the turning point. Yeah. The people who come to me, That's the fork in the road. Those the people who come to me are the ones who've decided, ooh, I have made a mess, miserable mess of my life and relationships. And I'd like to do something different now. And then the others go on a rampage. Narcissistic rage.
0: If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for Sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, I think that's right. From a relationship perspective, if you get to that fork in a relationship perspective, and you can think, "Oh God, I've really made a mess of life," then possibly there's a there's a turning point for everybody. But if if you don't take that left fork and you go right instead, um, you know, it, it really becomes even more grim for the other yeah. the other party to the relationship than it ever was before. Um, and handling that in the later part of your life. That's all really be
1: devastating yeah terrible the, the, it's an incidentally that kind of worsening is going it not all narcissism leads to abuse not even all pathological narcissists we were chatting around this earlier that's why it's not included in the dsm as, as a as part of the criteria but the path that you're describing almost certainly leads to abuse for one mm. clear reason and that is as that person is collapsing internally as they are feeling less and less like their experience in the world mirrors their need to feel special they begin to feel again small insignificant worthless and remember somebody who's narcissistic unless they come to me for help with it somebody who's narcissistic can't process those feelings and they don't so instead what they do is they project them yeah. A form of, mm-hmm. in projective identification, which is where it's that game of hoppatiot, yeah. I don't want to feel this way. Here you take it. And they yeah. say and do things to make you feel it. So the more that person internally is feeling the collapse, they the more they need to make the person closest to them feel a collapse.
0: And we see that all the time in divorce yeah. and separation. I mean, some of the oh, yeah. emails that get sent from by the narcissist to the ex-spouse, you're this, you're that, you're a terrible mother. You're, in fact, what they're saying is I'm a terrible parent. It's exactly. pure projection. You're falling apart. So they'll say, you yes. need help. you know, um, And actually, they mean I'm falling apart. I need help.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes. This is one of the sources of gaslighting, of course, too. Yeah. Not always. But for people who become severely narcissistic and their problems, the patterns of their behavior worsen, they become exacerbated. One of the things that can happen is they also have to distort reality in order to feel special. This is something I call the psychotic spiral, where reality is not conforming to their view of themselves. So they have to distort it. They have to bend it. They have to They have to ignore it. They lose touch in subtle ways.
0: Give us an example of of that.
1: So an example of somebody who maybe is also struggling with addiction and their life is collapsing around them and they're just not doing well at all at work. They come home and they talk to their spouse Mm -hmm. and they say, I've got this. I've got this in hand. Your problem is that you don't trust Mm -hmm. me you have never trusted me. You don't really have any faith in me at all. And if you had more faith in me, maybe I wouldn't have struggled so much in the past, but you got to understand I'm on top of this. Everything is going to be fine because I'll always work a way out. I'll always figure out what to do next. And you just got to trust that. Meanwhile, you know, the building's on fire. This this is where their perception of what's happening is not aligned at all with reality, and it's entirely driven internally by their need to maintain a certain view of themselves in the world.
0: And that's really interesting because what you're describing there is almost a delusion, isn't it? And I mean, Mm -hmm. we tend to reserve delusional thoughts for schizophrenia, manic episodes, and people with bipolar—a firmly fixed, unshakable belief—is what I mean um, by a delusion, and it sounds a little bit like that what you're
1: saying. It's exactly it. It's a delusional investment in feeling special where nothing is going to shake it.
0: And yet there's no mention of delusion in the DSM, in the criteria.
1: Well, this is a symptom of decompensation or deterioration that may or may not show up. It's not a core feature. What we're talking about is when things really start to fall apart. And this can happen with any personality disorder as they decompensate. Their version of it will be different, of course. In this, this person is denying reality in order to feel special. But there might be other people who de- deny reality in order to feel like they have more power, than somebody who's more psychopathic, somebody who's more sociopathic. And what, what we're talking about is a subtle form of psychosis called thought disorder, where whatever the internal preoccupation is becomes so intense it disrupts the quality and content of thinking. They get stuck in a groove and they they can't jump out of that groove. They keep seeing things with the same lens even though the world is not the way they see it. And it disrupts their ability to have conversations about their experience too. That's really what a thought disorder is. It's like a, a low level psychotic experience.
0: Again, how relevant is that to, to divorce and separation? Because that's sort of exactly what happens, isn't it? They get stuck in this way of thinking. They have a belief about the situation. And they genuinely believe it, and it's completely untrue. And yet they just cannot get themselves out of it. You know, perhaps they've decided that their spouse had an affair, when in fact that hasn't happened at all. But that's how they justify the fact that they're going to try and annihilate their spouse in the divorce process. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: No, that's another great example because it's projection, but it's that kind of psychotic projection, right? What happens there is that the person who's, who's experiencing that uh, can't own that they feel insecure mm-hmm. and they feel threatened. They cannot comfortably recognize this comes from inside me. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling and I might need help and support with it, or I might need to examine instead, you're doing this to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're cheating. Yeah. You're having affairs. That's why I feel this way inside. And if you just stopped doing that or you were a better person, I wouldn't feel this way. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's very complicated, isn't it?
1: We're jumped straight into the extreme here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you talked about therapy for narcissists. That's always a big issue for people. We spoke with Eleanor Greenberg on the last podcast. Oh, good. She explained about what she's been doing, guarding therapy for, for narcissists and how that's been working. And obviously you're also doing therapy with narcissists. How successful is it?
1: For the people who come in, I've had good success. The people who come in and stay. yeah. Well, let's do overall numbers. So probably over the last 10 years, I've had maybe 15 people come in. Five of those have probably been either exhibitionist <laughs> or exorated uh, narcissists who who duck out and that was that and then the rest you know the 10 of the 10 over the course of years in working with them and, and we're talking about work over years we work on changing their way of relating uh, we work on their core sense of self i do that by building their capacity to relate in a securely attached manner it's, it's that simple. The work of it isn't simple, but I'm, that's always what I'm trying to do, create some experience in the room between me and that other person where they can comfortably own vulnerable feelings in connection with another human being.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're there, secure attachment in, in that context. You're providing that.
1: First, first. Yeah, first. But I also help them create those experiences often in in imagination. For example, I might have somebody who comes to me who uh, is contemptuous, that's not unusual. And I might say to them, can you you tell me, are you feeling contemptuous towards me right now? Uh, And usually the answer is no, especially if it's early on because we haven't gotten far enough for those kinds of defenses to come out so quickly. And then, then, I'll just say, "Okay, so you're not in that state right now, so that tells us it's a state. It's something that comes active in you, it comes and goes, and we can understand that, so it's a part of you, it's not all of you. So I immediately start i alienating them from the symptom as a symptom- it's a symptom, it's not a core self, it's an adaptation that they had to develop and ask them to get an yeah get an image of the part of them when they're contemptuous. That's the imagery part of it. Can you, what does that look like? Can you just sort of conjure it up without thinking of what what does that guy? What does that version of you look like, that contemptuous guy? And then once I have that, I ask them to take back the feelings that they're having in that state. Like, oh, I can't stand the person I'm talking to. I think they're stupid. I ask them to take back in time. When did you first viscerally experience feeling like you were contemptuous of somebody or they were contemptuous of you I do both because I know it's relational they learned it somewhere or they had to do it for some reason and so I asked them to take that feeling back in time and then I get in like a scene a memory and inevitably it's like you know my my father was attacking me in the kitchen telling me I'm a worthless piece of shit Right. And then I have them picture that scene and have them relate from the present. I'm going to just do this quickly instead of showing. I'm going to tell instead of showing right now to you uh, just to move through it quickly, but I'll just have them imagine vividly. And that part's important that Mm -hmm. memory. And then how do you feel towards that little kid? And very often, even the most rigidly defended personality disordered, person and his narcissistic personality disorder can at least say i feel terrible for him and that's where i dive in because now we're creating an experience where this is somebody who can feel towards and on behalf because it's also them and it's memory so it mm-hmm. activates it it becomes alive in the present so also work with people's memories to help them develop attachment security where you know i, I might even invite them like well how do you can you tell that little kid that you feel sad for him and then people start to feel if you repeat that over and over again you've created attachment security and by doing that i've helped uh, i've helped five or six of the i know it's not a lot but not a lot of people came it's five or six people repair relationships i you know what one, one person sent me pictures After they had uh, reunited with their ex that they divorced after a series of affairs, their ex eventually took them back through all this repair. It's been years Um, and they're happy and they have a a happy, intact family with their kids. And that's the kind of success story I love to be able to tell.
0: There's a bit of sort of the inner child in that, the inner child work and kind of reparenting the -hmm. inner child, you know, as if you're. The parent of your own inner
1: child is—is is, is there a bit of that going on with that? It is kind of, but I do it in lots of ways. That's where I'm working with a memory as a mm-hmm. vivid example, so that so that that mm-hmm. so that the person I'm helping can relate in a way on, uh, on the other side of those feelings in a way that wasn't given to them, which is yes, a corrective experience. But I don't all I don't always work mm-hmm. with. A memory in that way there's lots of ways of doing but in that case it is kind of like working with an inner child um, it's just that I rarely divorce it from yeah. the memory yeah
0: well it makes it more powerful doesn't it
1: yes I want all the detail where were you standing where are you sitting where you, I mean until I painted a detailed picture where the where, where they can really see it and I can see it we don't really even dive in mm-hmm. so it's that it's very I'm bringing that younger self alive for some kind of transformation in context.
0: Wow. Karen Walker and Supriya McKenna are authors of Divorcing a Narcissist, The Lure, the Loss and the Law, and Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide, available from all good booksellers and direct from the publisher at bathpublishing.com. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or DrSapria.com.